Welcome to Witch, the women in technology creative industries hub, elevating the voices of women in tech. My name is Bishi, the founder of Witch. In this podcast, I'll be talking to a woman in tech about her work, journey, life, and process. In this episode, I'll be talking to composer, performer, and artist Anna Meredith about her groundbreaking acoustic and electronic compositional works. Please do like, review, and subscribe. We're a new podcast, and every bit of support helps. Hi, Anna, and welcome to Creative Women in Tech podcast. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. It's I've a been, yeah, I've been a fan ever since I first discovered your music. And I think the first really major piece that I experienced was Hands Free at the Proms in 2012. And it was absolutely exhilarating to be in that audience. I'd never seen or experienced anything like that. And yeah, so, you know, thank you so much. And also, congratulations on your second Mercury nomination. How is it all feeling in the time of COVID? Is there an actual ceremony? Well, sadly, it's only my first Mercury. Oh, I thought it was still second. Okay. You know, you can keep that in. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, in a, in a, you know, the weirdest of times, um, sort of like the worst of times, really. So it's, yeah, it's been lovely to have something nice, uh, something a bit encouraging, you know, with a lot of other stuff, it's very easy, isn't it, to feel apathetic and deflated and not sure where to go or what to do and a bit lost generally. So this has been, it's been a really nice to have a little positive thing amongst a sea of uh, giant turds. Right, yeah, yeah. So has lockdown affected your creativity negatively or, or have you been finding ways to make work? Yeah, I mean, I'm not someone who, I know those people who've, done, who've seen this opportunity and really seized it with both hands to do little experiments and little daily challenges or, um, and I, I had stuff that was happening already. So I've got on with the things that were already happening, but I haven't felt compelled to generate unasked for stuff. There was a long time of feeling pretty low, to be honest, and pretty... Uh, yeah, just kind of mourning the whole, you know, the year and our landscape and self, you know, for myself feeling just pretty miserable about what I thought I was, what, what I wanted to do this year. Why can't I, do, you know, just the whole adjustment of it all felt quite big. So, yeah, it's taken a while to start to, you know, I feel now like I'm starting to get going again with um, ideas for new projects and stuff that are, are coming from me rather than other people coming to me but yeah it's not I've not been dr- driving stuff as much as I might normally yeah yeah sure and I'm just going to take this back to the beginning where did your journey with music begin um I would say I'm not especially musical kid it's not like um someone who's a brilliant at an instrument as a you know age three or four playing pieces or you know and none of that and I wasn't writing music as a little kid, I first piece I ever wrote was like for my school exams, you, you had to write about music. So it's quite old, well, not that old, but you know, 14 or 15, not like five or six. And so, but all the other playing, you know, I loved music and I was in, you know, all the orchestras and the choirs and the bands and stuff. Um, but yeah, I, it's definitely sort of as a teenager getting into going to gigs with mates, but also playing in orchestras and loving that and singing in choirs. 
loving that and then gradually going to study study music and eventually this kind of oh I'm a composer how did that happen it's an evolving thing for me rather than like a light bulb this is what I want to do with my life yeah I understand from your education which I believe like it was in Edinburgh um that it was very inclusive and you were encouraged to to try everything and go through things in stages um I think that's really amazing I don't know very many people who experienced music education like that how do you think that kind of inclusivity has impacted the way in which you make work I think I mean this is that this is all sort of school age and yeah it was amazing Edinburgh had this free or has I hope still got this free after school music programs all kinds of different types of music traditional scottish music jazz orchestras choirs wind bands brass bands but also tiered at all these levels and so that's what's so great and you know I was at a comprehensive school and all of us would pile on a bus after school and we'd all get into the bottom orchestra and we'd be awful and we'd all be like 16 clarinets all honking away or whatever and but it's great <laughs> you get into a, a level you know it's not you're not too, so intimidated about it's so you know the levels out of your depth that just feels inclusive and fun and you get into it socially and then you want to progress to the next level and I so yeah I think I think maybe if I'd been in any kind of hothouse environment any uh I wasn't at any junior academy or conservatory or that business and took me a long time to get quite good at my instruments and so I think I might have been scared off if I'd had an idea that the way to do music was to be brilliant at it by a young age because this way you're encouraged to just do it for fun and for play and to you know for those kind of reasons which I think are the you know some of the best reasons to do music to to make it social and not to make it so precious. How about you was that the same did you have a similar way in? No, um, I, so I was trained um, on the piano and then I was trained in Hindustani vocal music and the entire culture of that is you must be brilliant and you <laughs> must dedicate yourself, you must be like a nun and, you know, and I think, you know, I'm so grateful for the education that I did receive but I think because my mum's a classical uh, music singer and a lot of the um when people were doing gigs they would stay at our house so I was very lucky and that I was privy to using exceptional musicians all improving in our you know in our front room kind of yeah. late late into the night but it's very much like you know you cannot get around this music unless you are a genius and I think actually think that's where I've you know it must be in a big headspace to kind of go for it on your own terms then hours of therapy <laughs> I think I think I think I'm still getting over it now. I I I think I really convinced myself in so many areas that yeah. I'm incapable or I'm somehow not able to do things. But you know, I've always just had this tremendous drive, and I always wanted to do things, and you know, really went against the grade on practically everything in order to make things happen. Yeah. So, you know, I I think if you're a creative person, you're not going to get whole like held down. But that's something that I've really picked up on in your work because whether it's a piece like Hands Free or just the relationship that you have with your band, like it's a bit like the Scooby Doo Gang. Do you know what I mean? It feels like everyone's in it together. Yeah, I think it kind of almost. Like- what you were saying, it's taken me a super long time to figure out that the only way to do it is to do it on my own terms. And for a lot of my 20s, and certainly coming out of music college, I felt so intimidated by the establishment of how music was made, or the idea that you had to basically sit and wait around for commissions, and that you had very little control, and you certainly wouldn't be involved with the performance. And, um, you know, and I got all that and felt, 
you know, pretty, pretty out of my depth. And it, then that just that gradually switching it around to doing it very in a low key way for yourself has gradually, yeah, grown my, my, my confidence has grown with, you know what, why don't I do this for myself? Do the thing I'd like to do. And, and yeah, eventually that means, you know, that I'm able to approach projects like writing for hands free or other stuff where it's, it's taken quite a lot of musical confidence to just go in and be like this is going to work because I've got this idea you know to know that something's going to musically work and yeah with the band I guess just have you know found these people who are as up for it as I am such a labour of love like we all work it's a lot you know it's not the glamour and glitz and you know money that I thought it might be in my 90s idea of what being in a band was so oh I know all about it <laughs> you'll be driving around some glitzy tour bus with you know um <laughs> lots of people helping you pack everything up and do it you know it's very you know it's hot yeah as you know it's incredibly hard work but yeah we have a lot we have a great time together and that kind of bounces out i think that's fantastic so what was the first piece of technology that really made an impact on you like for example my parents had uh, a, a record player and i would put abba when i was you know when i was a kid like <laughs> It's that basic. Or we had a tape recorder that my mum and I would make radio shows on. Yeah, I mean, it would be probably, yeah, you're right. I mean, for ages, I there wasn't much music in my house. And, you know, the, I don't know why this, this, this music wasn't on. I didn't play, it wasn't playing like in the kitchen or whatever. But yeah, I begged and begged for, um, yeah, a tape player. And like you, and, you know, and I'd be taping the top 40 to then listen on my paper round, as I do, you know, and... <laughs> And I saw, but I think I only managed to have like one top 40 that I then listened to for like a year, um, this single, single iteration. So there's sort of a very specific sort of probably around 1993, 94, that, you know, set of tracks that I could do all the words for <laughs> very most men, certain like particular tracks that just happened to be in that newspaper run. And yeah, I was then doing little shows and I remember doing the bank, uh, trying to do the bangles and I hadn't understood that if I press record and was I had some bracelets and I was sort of doing little jangly percussion and I thought it, I would be adding to the track and I remember some someone else coming along what are you doing I was just, I'm recording my percussion you know that sort of thing so yeah maybe some early failed experiments um but uh yeah nothing nothing especially high tech early experiments in tape manipulation via boys <laughs> to men <laughs> Boys to Men and the Bangles, who I love, by the way. Um, I remember watching the Bangles Eternal Flame video. Oh. and just thinking, I've never seen women. They are so beautiful. I mean, they are. Yeah. <laughs> you know? What a song, right? Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. So did you form the Camberwell Composer Collective after college or was it just something that just came together naturally? Yeah, that was that was a bunch of other composer pals. We all yeah. lived in and around Camberwell and it was it was yeah it was sort of why we're at the end of being at the Royal College of Music and I think it was sort of like I was saying that realization of that you're kind of like shoved out into the world at that you know the industry has changed a lot since then but at that point there was definitely a kind of I don't think there was even many that many composers I mean these days anytime I speak to any young composers loads of them have groups and collectives and ensembles brilliant people are doing stuff on their on their own terms and with their own instruments. But at that point, that didn't really feel like much of a thing. And yeah, so it was our way of 
hanging out mostly and putting on these gigs in a little jazz club in Camberwell and they were super informal and we'd talk about the music and we'd do little experiments with bits of technology that none of us yeah. had used before and it was just the way a very low pressure I think that's what made it possible was that we made it fun for each other and you kind of felt when when there's a group of you messing about and trying it together when it's just you in your bedroom that is a that's important too but I personally can sometimes get a bit overwhelmed with the how do I know when it's finished but when there's a group of you presenting these things written really quickly slapdash bodging the technology together figuring out how bits of equipment work that we don't really know you sort of validate it somehow and that made it it was fun and we did that for several years just put on these kind of chaotic little gigs but they were very important for me in terms of like that sense of ownership I think I think I've even been in the flat that you used to live in Emily Hall's flat right yeah but that was was exactly as a flat Lee and Byrne lived in it for a long time you had an amazing flat right opposite Church Street yeah 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 yeah, so she had the connection with the church that meant that she that's how we got the gigs and the crypt and yeah it was just a, a brilliant time of writing these you know figuring out bits of really primitive software or figuring out guitar pedals or bits of visual software but all in such a lo-fi transparent way and that sort of has really sort of stayed with me since then just as a great way to do it that feels kind of authentic I reckon. And is this where you first started to introduce electronics into your pieces? Yeah, I mean, I think I did. So I did some stuff like I wrote a piece called Axeman, which is for a, a amplified bassoon with electric guitar pedals, which, you know, again, made sense to me because I didn't feel, you know, very comfortable. But, you know, any music technology experience I had before being going to huge studios where, you know, being real, real to real things or bits of really intimidating, archaic looking computer equipment. And I felt you know, really out of my depths, but here I can understand, you know, bassoon microphone goes into guitar pedals, sound makes bassoon distortion, sounds a bit like now the bassoon sounds like an electric guitar, into an amp, off you go, and write, therefore write the material that explores that. So that, I mean, obviously that sounds obvious, but at the time just managing to make it that hands-on really helps. And so, yeah, and then we did some really simple things like little remixes of each other's pieces on kind of cool edit pro, you know, these kind of really basic, uh, I don't even know, like, I can't I don't even know what it be- then became, but some awful, awful bit of software. Um, I don't think I did much for like instruments and electronics. I was either terribly cutting and pasting my stuff together into little like, these remixes or trying out stuff with pedals and amps and things like that. But it was that kind of don't worry about it just give it a go attitude that I think is what really kind of helped me out long term I love that so much well I love that bassoon piece and I don't think anyone has made the bassoon sound cooler since Captain Beefheart you know <laughs> and it's just it sounds like an electric guitar I mean it's you know but then there's this kind of weird meta thing that someone sort of said to me I don't you know it was a friend who doesn't know anything about orchestral instruments. And they were like, I, I said, like, you know, really smugly said, oh, this is going to blow your mind. And they watched it and they were like, I don't get it. So it's a guitar. And I was saying, yeah, but it doesn't sound like a bassoon. They're like, yeah, but I have no idea what a bassoon sounds like. So I realized, okay, okay. So you have, sort of have to know what a bassoon sounds like. And maybe even the type of person that plays the bassoon and the role of the bassoon to kind of get the transformation. So maybe it's a bit of a it's not quite the inclusive piece that I hoped it was, but it's definitely been embraced by, I've yeah. seen some hilarious videos of like bassoon professors and 
mysterious American universities all like donning their what they think is their cool gear for to play for it and yeah it's it's traveled well somehow that little piece that's so brilliant and also like the bassoon was one of the biggest jokes in the um in the last um series of Fleabag that that, like like, the bassoon was like a recurring was a recurring joke it's hard to it's hard to be cool with a bassoon right I mean it doesn't scream you know sex appeal immediately but you know this time this time it's just getting out there yeah absolutely um through my research I found that you use Sibelius very often and then you transport the MIDI files to Ableton you also draw your compositions which I love it kind of reminds me of Cornelius Cardew or Fluxus um I think I'm just trying to get a real sense like there's something very visual about that whole process um, at what point do you like? Do you draw your compositions to begin with, or do you draw them in the process of when you're making work? It's normally, very near the beginning. It's a sort of like the. I think the most important musical thing for me, and the thing I take most time and pride in, is pacing, and in getting the context of ideas right. Um, you know, in the same way that we all do all the time. It's just about how we present anything, spoken bits of you know conversations. Um, pace our drinks you know pace our you know we're all doing it all the time so quite early on I want to be able to step back you know I'm not someone who could just sit and improvise at a piano or a guitar or whatever and make a piece of music that way so I yeah I decided that rather than trying to rely on a sort of what can come next or maybe this or that might be nice if we went to this chord better to step back and try and visualize what might happen how bits of music might evolve so that's where I started drawing these little sketches which end up sort of being a bit like um sort of exploded mood boards where you have you know here might be you know I might have a, an idea of a shape normally an expanding shape but I might then have a couple of little chords or little suggestions of what what might be the material that's going to expand and it's just a, it, and then it, you, it makes you just feel hugely confident because you feel you've got this map that you can stick on your wall and keep referring back to and think it's okay, I've got a plan. I'm not just at sea with pages and pages of notes. And yeah, then I go to Sibelius and eventually I go to Ableton. But that's, despite the fact it's quite electronic music, that's actually quite late in the process for me. Right, yeah. And the other thing that I love in how you write is like polyrhythms. I I was watching the Six Music um, performance that you did recently before Mm. everything kind of shut down. Mm. And I just kept looking at you and the band and thinking you know, just the intricate use of rhythm and of polyrhythms. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's really fun to write. I'm not someone who does it very academically. I'm not normally very good at thinking, ah, oh, yes, this piece is going to explore whatever. What normally happens <laughs> have an idea and maybe I'm playing it on a loop or on my Sibelius or I'm imagining it. And then sometimes I might even notice that my feet are walking in a different time or that I'm because I'm quite often out, quite out of my seat and I like to feel the music and kind of embody it and jigging about. And it's sometimes I've managed to get these different cross feelings. If they feel natural in my body, if they're not too awkward and um, if I can make them feel like, ha you know, there's a feeling of actually the real pulse of this bit of material is Ta-da, this. That's an amazing musical thing to be able to do and I love it when other people do it as well so it's a it's a lot of fun and that's something I'm always trying to see is there another you know angle to look at this musical idea on what would happen if you flipped it upside down would it you know if it's suddenly a below you know if it's suddenly you thought it was a 
a chorus, but it's not, or you thought it was a bass line, but it's actually a treble line. You know, is there a way of just seeing the ideas in different feel? I, I think that's nice to sort of peer a bit around the edges that way. Well, it's really like I'm really glad that you brought up movement and dancing because the most recent video is an entire dance sequence. So has dance always been really important to your life, just in a really informal way? Definitely, in an informal way. I mean, I, I love dancing. You know, I've never been like a massive, you know, I've done loads of sort of bits of dance classes and tiny little bits of like clubbing and stuff. But I love, you know, I'm definitely like a kitchen dancer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very loud headphones on, on my own in the, in the bedroom, um, that kind of dancer. Or, you know, weddings, drunken parties you can't stop me I just I'm there for the evening so yeah for so for me dancing yeah I, I feel I think I'm looking quite often for that physical connection to the ideas I have like I basically tend to know that things are good that ideas are good when I am ex so excited that I'm getting out of my chair and having a little dance to my own stuff so I sort of almost use that test of is it good as if my is my body responding yeah, absolutely. I've also heard on a podcast that you're a fan of presets. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I was so happy to hear that because there's a real snobbery in electronic music that, you know, you must be sitting there and like playing all of these different resonators and making your own sounds and blah, blah, blah. And actually, it, like, it is really fun. I'm, I'm actually designing um, a, a sitar sound pack at the moment and I've got really into different pedals and kind of what have you. But I was really relieved when you said that you like Bruce. <laughs> I just think, like for me, it's broad brushstroke ideas like that. I'm definitely would not be the one to claim that the music is working on a super acoustically detailed sound. I like sounds that work are normally quite, you know, um, distinct to each other. Mm. And so I'm looking for separation. And yeah, so quite often I, it's, it's not like the, st I don't start with the sound, I end with the sound. So I'm starting mm. with the shapes and the, maybe the musical blobs of what something is or the rhythm. And then I'm looking for the right sound to fit those rhythms. And normally I might have a vague idea. It's going to be a crunchy sound or a squelchy sound. or, And then, yeah, I'll just start with presets. And sometimes they're fine. Most of the time I might tweak some of the stuff. But it's just not where my skills or really interests are, which I sort of feel should maybe feel a bit more embarrassed about. But it's just, to me, doesn't make the music stronger. I'd be better spending the time earlier on making the composing good than on, tweet, than on building a new sound. I wouldn't even know where to begin. Yeah, fascinating. And so you've written pieces for both the first and the last night of the proms. I just want to talk about the piece Five Telegrams. How involved were you in the process of the design of the visuals? Like, did you sit down with 59 Productions and really kind of go through the music and build it as an audiovisual piece together? Yeah, we definitely, it was, it was really nice as a project. We did work really closely from the beginning on these shapes and so I spent a lot of time with my you know I'd come in with my maps and we'd talk about them and and what each movement was we wanted there to be again a sort of transparency as to what the process you know what the what was happening in the music so if a piece of movement's called redaction the music would redact as in a musical line would go round and round and each cycle one note would be change to a different kind of sound and over time you'd have more of the, uh, the interruption than the original thing and visually the same thing you'd have a canvas that over time is sort of obliterated by something else and that to me the clarity of that idea is really nice and 
So planning that together so that the interrupt musical interruptions and visual interruptions happen, you know, it was on a click, so that happened exactly the right time. It worked really well. In terms of the actual content, I think I was able to, you know, we had a sort of different visual language for each each movement. I didn't get to sort of say, can that bit be blue? Because it was like a huge big team of them kind of making it. But I think we spent a lot of time talking about the energy and the shape and what could be held back for specific moments to give the most impact. You know, there's a moment in the last movement where for the first and only time the piece, the organ plays. And if you were in the hall, it suddenly just goes like, whoa, because it's this huge wall of sound that's been like held back. And they kept a sort of visual thing, this big sort of Doctor Who vortex circle thing for that moment. So it was nice being able to work together to, I guess, amplify musical ideas and visual ideas like that. Yeah, I just found it absolutely mesmerising. I mean, I work a lot with visual people and with live coders and stuff, and sometimes they'll tell me ideas that are so in-depth. I just say, oh, darling, that sounds fantastic. But then it usually is, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like you know, they'll be talking really tiny bits of code and my mind will just glaze over. Just do it. Sounds great. Yeah, 99 out of 100 times. It's yeah. just absolutely brilliant. So, yeah. And then this takes me on to making the score for eighth grade. Mm. What was your experience of making that film score? It was a very emotional film. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Um, well, it's my first film that I'd done yeah. a soundtrack for. Um, and I didn't really know what to expect. I mean, I was lucky that it was all going to be electronic. So I think if there had been a lot of recording of real instruments, that would have made it well longer, more expensive and would have made editing or adjusting stuff difficult. Though I was lucky, I think that there wasn't, I think compared to how I hear other people's projects are, very few edits and changes. I was kind of allowed to do do what I wanted. And Bo, the director, is really musical guy, great instincts. He'd actually done mock, he'd done temps uh, himself of the, the sound, which were actually, which were great. I mean, didn't end up being quite how my music was, but it was really interesting to hear how good he was He'd written stuff on on synths as sort of temp stuff, but yeah, he was he came to London, and we wrote well. I wrote most of it in almost like ten days that he was here for most of it. It was just like this kind of tunnel of just steam coming off my fingers as I was trying to write wow. so kind of quickly. But it helped in a way because I guess cause I was dealing with someone who cared. He you know really is smart and detailed and wanted to get it right and you know and she's so relatable and you know reminds me and I'm sure many people so much of themselves and what I loved though was that he was saying you know there are so many films teenage girl like a plinky mandolin and dinky jinky you know and a cutesy jokey thing and he said I don't want this to be you know I want you to take her anxieties and her small social achievements and amplify them lean into them so that they are heightened so that you know, because these are for her the big triumphs and failures and disasters. So make them as dramatic as the ticking bomb and the, you know, and the, you know, the big adult emotional landscape, you know, just make that stuff feel serious and take her seriously. And I, I really liked that approach. It felt, it, it removed a layer of judgment, almost a layer of artifice that you kind of get sometimes watching as a kind of sense of a third of a, of a observing this thing rather than being in it so yeah I I really enjoyed it It it's great 
Wow, I didn't realize that you were, you had this really small period of time to write all of that stuff. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. I often find that it's the limitations of a project that really inform what comes out of it. If you're writing then, do you find it better if someone says, you've got a week to do it, is it better for you? I would definitely say that deadlines help, but also I think it's like, you know, I mean, I've been experimenting a lot kind of more as a sort of composer producer during lockdown mm-hmm. and also just like, you know, needing to lie down for three hours for for, for no reason. Do you know what I mean? Just just yeah. because it's been so full on. But in actual fact, going okay, well, I you know, I have to deal with this very sort of surreal time. I have to deal with my own lack of skill in certain areas, and just really go for it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, you, you know, just work with work with whatever situation that I have, and just kind of go for it. Right. It could be so easy to be confronted with that feeling of not knowing out of your depth and to go the other way to be like oh well I'm not even gonna bother trying but I think it's great just go you know thinking okay I'm just gonna go for it and that's so much more powerful and brave and (laughs) I think you'll look back well I I I try and take that approach wherever I can and there's only been a few times I mean I've definitely got regrets both musical and not but I think sometimes just thinking you know the sort of the, the, the idea of these things that never see the light of day because you you don't you're too scared to push them out into the world or to, is is scary is e- even more scary. Of course, and I think also you know I've been asked to submit some things to the Museum of Youth Culture because I was really involved with club culture and sort of LGBTQ plus spaces in my late teens, and I just look back at the pictures and I'm just like, God, what was wrong with me? I was fine, you know, but what, how was I convincing myself that I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that? And I do think that technology plays a really big relationship in all of that. Like just what yeah. you were saying about you have now have these composer collectives and you know like people making really really exciting stuff and it's just social media and just like even having this kind of a zoom conversation that just in 2003 like that just it's just not how people did things do you know what I mean yes, and at that point there was a lot of smoke and mirrors and you had to, everything had to be done behind the scenes and then just presented as an immaculate perfect thing whether that was an orchestral composition or anything electronics would be done with huge baffling bits of technology and I didn't feel that there was much humor or a reverence or per, you know and obviously the sharing of everyone's emotional lives can on the flip side feel a bit much at times but yeah. I like that kind of uh, lo-fi get people giving stuff a go is so much more interesting to me than the idea of this kind of pretentious or or alienating you don't know what I'm doing here and you never will um that transparency and connection with people and yeah like you say be able to just talk to people and people you know being open about how they do how they how they make their make their music or make their art is is feels really healthy I think that's been a great stuff about the last few years yeah 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 absolutely I mean I I share bits of video in action and I'm I'm amazed I I was schooled by sort of you know you know ex-club kids from the 80s and it was all about Mm. putting on a front and being really perfect and like you know I feel like now in my 30s I'm sort of unschooling myself out of all Mm. of that and it's just much more fun and it's like much more informal and stuff. Yeah it's reclaiming things isn't it on your own terms and feeling like you're not uh, only able to produce to present yourself in the world through another because otherwise you know I think if, if for example I'd gone to Cambridge or Oxford I would have been so bad at their 
way of, you know, the way that composing is taught with the sort of, you learn to write in other people's styles of music and, you know, and you get amazing skills. And I know incredible composers who can write with all that awareness of other people. But for me, it would have been totally intimidating and I would have been so bad at it that it would have made me feel I can't even write a back chorale. How am I ever going to write my own stuff? And so I think there's this, well, I just think it's so important to be able to figure things out in your own terms and to create an environment that allows people to figure things out in their own terms, not just funnel people through, you know, co courses or schemes that are only going to try to produce one type of thing, but actually genuinely allow people the space to do the stuff they want to do. Because that's got to be more, you know, it's more valuable artistically and you're probably going to get better content. I mean, I remember once teaching a kid composing and I was asking her about, her own music and she was like oh no I hate my own music I would never listen to it you know I was like what do you listen to and she you know found a pop playlist of stuff and I said like, well why don't you write this and she's like but I won't get good marks and my teachers won't like it you know I was like well so you don't like it she's like no I hate my own music it sounds horrible and I was thinking well if you don't like it why should anybody else like it you know it's so there's something's wrong with that sort of system where we're yeah. encouraging you know, people not to write something that they love. I want to hear stuff that people love. That's really mind-blowing. But also, hashtag lucky, lucky student to have you as a teacher. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I guess when I was studying the sitar, I used to go on uh, yearly pilgrimages to Delhi to study mm -hmm. with one of Ravi Shankar's senior dis disciples. And, you know, the pushback that I got for using the small studio sitar and... Right. Of course, now now everything like India has really come on in so many ways. You know, there again, the social media, in, the internet, everything has really opened up. But yeah, I think I was really badly affected by the sort of snobbery that I was on the end of. And the fact that if you were a woman in that space, you had to be a daughter or a wife because otherwise, like you were just some tart or something. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I really, I was really, really up against it. And I think that that's affected me more than I've ever really gone into. But yeah, it's just, it's nice to unlearn it. It's kind of more exciting to, at least I'm on, on learning it now. I feel like I spend a lot of time kicking myself for not having, figuring some of this stuff out earlier. And then other times just feeling so grateful that I have figured it out or I am figuring it out and I am you know, managing to do the things I'm enjoying doing now. And that's, that's hugely, hugely privileged position to be in. But, you know, I can't tell whether, you know, this is sort of like, oh, why, you know, what was I thinking doing, you know, writing, worrying about all this X stuff that was never going to matter. And then other times, you know, maybe it's just lucky to be where we are. But Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And are there other mediums that you want to write in or are there kind of other, I, I think I found out that you wanted to write a piece for a roller coaster. <laughs> yeah. I've always had that on the old checklist. Yeah. I think I've done, I mean, I've done a few installation -y pieces that I've really loved doing. I did one for the ice skating machine in Somerset House, which the thing that clears the rink. And oh, wow. that was just really fun, you know, as the machine drove around, the, the direction of the machine, uh, as it, the speed and the direction changed the composition. I didn't do the, the programming, I hasten to add. I just said, this is what I think it should do, and someone else did the programming. And there was like a phone on the back of the thing, which had the accelerometer thing and, um, you know, sent the information back to Ableton set. But yeah, I love, the, again, the transparency of that. Like, you could see this thing, you could hear this music, I think you could work out what was happening. And... Similarly, I did a, another installation for some shopping centre lifts in Manchester International Festival. They had these two lifts, two in Selfridges and two in m and that faced each other. It's just four lifts. 
And so I just sort of did like a sort of little installation where, uh, depending what, you know, they just play different notes, basically. It's like a kind of four-part chorale and just these kind of really simple, playful, and, you know, things like that have been great, great fun to do. I mean, she says, because I guess I get to swan in and be like, this is what should happen. And some poor bastards had to like, <laughs> string, remove the roof of the shopping centre to put like speakers and sensors and all sorts of stuff. But yes, roller coaster. I think that'd be a really fun thing to try and soundtrack that kind of, you know, giving heightening or playing into that because I, I, I'm quite into it I mean I'm terrified of roller coasters but I find them very intriguing and a bit sexy yeah there's something I don't know uh, about you know I'm because I'm scared of them as well I think you could really lean into that fear a bit yeah one day I'm, I'm sure it'll happen I'm not worried about it yeah well in that Ableton video um that's where I got the whole image of the Scooby-Doo van you and your band being like the Scooby-Doo gang because I think there are various pictures of you I think you're on some one of those like Alton Towers like, like those rides that drop yeah. down yeah we do manage to I mean, we're going on, actually tomorrow, no, Saturday, we're going away together on holiday for a week because we just somehow like hanging out together and have gone and went to Centre Parks last year and we, you know, we're going to like Amber <laughs> Sands, we're staying in like a trashy caravan by the sea and we're doing arcades and it's all very highbrow. Um, but yeah, it's they're great. And yeah, we do try, because touring is, you know, as we were saying, is exhausting yeah. and so I think we try and, you know, normally try and do a theme park in it or we each get to find, pick something we want to do. So we've been to, you know, Maddie the Cellist likes the Botanical Gardens. We've been there and Jack wanted to see some museum for vintage cars. So we went there, you know, so we pick stuff that we all want to do and we eat far too much and drink far too much. And it's, it's, it's good. For, and you have to sort of try and balance. Otherwise, you'd just be thinking, I'm driving 10 hours a day. Yeah. I'm going crazy. Um, yeah, as you know. So uh yeah it's it's we try and have as much fun as we can to sort of make the whole thing palatable somehow yeah brilliant no it really really translates um i think another thing that you mentioned is is when you're playing live you like to be able to really see the band so you're not so constricted to the laptop but i mean for me it's so it's so musically intricate and complex but incredible amounts of fun and i don't know very many composers or sort of like electronic producer types who are going in between that discipline of something that's really serious but really fun right um, so yeah. thank you <laughs> no no that, that is exactly how it feels to me it feels it's a lot of fun and it's joyful and there's times that I'm just hooting with glee during a gig because I'm having such a good time but some of you know some of the stuff's really hard and you know and I like yeah you know I'm not at the front I'm at the side we're all in a semicircle so that we can see each other and we enjoy playing the gigs together that's it's really fun and it feels joyful and at times you know quite the music's big and it's threatening and it's quite powerful so you can kind of get in that together and I don't want to be you know very very first gigs I did I was me and a laptop you know looking at Ableton trying to do everything and making these live loops and doing all stuff and it was just no I had no fun and so I've just decided that it's I'm trying to keep away from the laptop as much as possible and be more with the band and more with the, more with physical playing, you know, drumming and clarinetting and hitting things and playing the keyboards and um, having such a better time doing it. Were you buzzing at that six music gig at the Roundhouse? Because you really seemed like you were, you were yeah. emanating something yeah, really think, extraordinary. Yeah, we had a great, we had a good gig there. You know, it was a nice big audience, big sexy stage, great lighting. 
Um, you know, we'd just come off doing a little UK tour that had gone really well. So I think we felt played in, confident. We were about to go to the States for a month tour. You know, that was exciting. Yeah, I think we were. We were in good, on good form that day. And um, yeah, I, I de- yeah, definitely had a good day. Uh, it obviously feels quite weird looking back and because that was the last gig we I've done. I felt good, definitely. Wonderful. Well, to round off this interview, I just wanted to ask, who is your favourite woman in tech? She can be from the past, in the present, or someone from the future imagined. That's such a good question. I'm going to say a sort of existing person. I mean, I always look to Bjork just because she, the ambition and the reinvention and and the comprehensiveness of her vision, you know, they're not, you know, she thinks of obviously there's a musical side and the technology and the orchestration, but the the outfits and, and the visual element is so complete and the world she makes and the pushing of, you know, apps, you know, the apps she's made and the VR elements, you know, it's so ambitious and so holistic that she's really, and that was very sort of pivotal in thinking what an album can be, that it can be so varied, there can be lo-fi moments and in, instrumental only moments and huge range in her stuff and so she's great but yeah also I love the idea of thinking of a future of you know girls feeling confident yeah. and maybe imagining you know young girls feeling having fun with technology um I don't know if I'm particular I can't picture a particular little girl but you know maybe there's some little girl who's you know, when by the time she's a teenager, she's just having fun with it and not not worrying about how to make things. She's just, you know, able to make music or with their mates and in a in a judgment free environment. Um, uh, maybe we're not that far off that, but it feels like we're getting further in a sort of inclusive give stuff a go landscape, which feels very encouraging. Absolutely. Anna Meredith, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anna, for being my guest this week. It's been an absolute honour. And thank you all for tuning in and subscribing. Thanks to The Rattle for all of their technical support on this podcast. You can find out more about Witch at Instagram, Facebook and Twitter.com forward slash Witch. You can go to witch.com to find out news and updates and to sign up to our monthly newsletter. Until next time, thanks and goodbye.